You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hold your ears, folks. It's showtime. People pay good money to see this movie. When they go out to a theater, they want cold sodas, hot popcorn, and no monsters in the projection booth. Everyone pretend podcasting isn't boring. Turn it off. sweat, but you don't dare move. You want to scream, but you can't. Terror grips every nerve in your body, and your heart is beating so fast, it feels like your eardrums are going to burst. You swallow hard, and you realize there is nothing you can do but wait and squirm. Now American International Pictures presents Squirm, the ultimate horror. Millions of writhing, seething creatures oozing out of the mire, shocked into a frenzy by 100,000 volts of electricity, driven by an uncontrollable urge to feed on human flesh. Squirm, rated R under 17, not admitted without parents. Hey folks, welcome to a special episode of The Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. On this episode, I am talking with director Jeff Lieberman about his new book, Day of the Living Me, Adventures of a Subversive Cult Filmmaker from the Golden Age. I think you're going to enjoy this discussion. I definitely had a great time talking with Mr. Lieberman. We talked about some of my favorite films of his, Squirm, Blue Sunshine, Remote Control. He's got so many great movies. Definitely, if you are into his films, or even if you're not, you need to read this book. It is wonderful, and I will include a link to where you can buy it in the show notes. Enjoy. So I have to tell you, I loved the book. It was fantastic. Great. Music to my ears. I can't even call it a labor of love. I don't even know what it was. Me writing a book, it was such a novelty. I'll use every cliche, uncharted waters. You know, it just... Uh, I never did this before. I don't need the money. So, you know, what, what's my motivation? And my motivation basically is for guys like you to say what you just said. You enjoy, you enjoy the book and you dig it and, you know, and uh, maybe get something out of it. That's the other part of it that people have told me um, from the point of view of a young filmmaker and going through all the confusion and everything. So, you know, it's all to the good. It's my way of giving back. Don't I sound like Sally Field? Had you written about this stuff before? I'm trying to remember the intro to the book. It almost sounded like a lot of this stuff existed and you were just kind of pulling it all together. Right. That's exactly right. I um, wrote down, not a diary, but I would tell these stories. What happened, you know, right fresh in my memory. And I give all the credit to my wife, Joanne, because she said, and, you know, and I'm, when I tell the stories, I'm not, I initially would tell it to her, but I would recount it at dinner parties and things like that. And then eventually at, you know, screenings with two, three hundred people in the audience. And she said, 
you should write this stuff down. You know, I said, well, I, I remember it. And then I took her up. I did write it down over the years. And then it was just a question of putting it all in chronological order. And then it becomes a book. I never intended it to be a book until I decided, let's see what happens. And I put it all in chronological order. And then saw there was a through line, and the through line was this nut job, which happens to be have a similar name to my name. I said, yeah, well, this is pretty cool. I mean, uh, maybe, you know, people would dig this. I had no idea how people would react to it, but I'm getting very positive uh, feedback, so it's great. It helps try to put a logic to the stuff that you've written and directed over the years, because you look at your filmography and it just, it's so amazing to see just all the different types of stuff that you've done over the years. And then this helps actually put it into such context that it's like, well, of course, Blue Sunshine is going to come after Squirm. Of course, you know, Remote Control is going to come after Just Before Dawn. <laughs> yeah, it makes sense now reading the book. You fucking nailed, nailed it, nailed it. That, you know, it's like, I don't have a plan, but when you read it, you go, yeah, exactly what you just said. That, yeah, of course, this guy would do this and this guy would do that, but I'm that guy. I don't know it at the time, but I know it now. That's great. I should interview you. I'm so fascinated, too, by your process and just, you know, you talk about going to that yellow notepad and the way that you, 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 go through these ideas and everything. It's just so fascinating to read that and like how different things will trigger different ideas for you. Like where you get the idea for squirm where you get the idea for blue sunshine. It's just like, Oh, this is great. It was such a nice way to like kind of peel the top off your head and look in there and see how that creative process works. Yeah. And uh, you know, so many times I've been at these, you know, in the Q and a after screening movies and they say, how did you get the idea for this? Or how do you get your idea in, in interviews? How do you get your ideas in general? And it's like, you know, it's kind of question like it's, it's not an answerable question because everybody has different creative people. They could be painters. You ask a painter that question. It's like, they'll just look at you, uh, you know, you don't know. But when I broke it down in the book, it was just by memory of step by step how I did it. It's the first time I ever articulated how I got the ideas for each thing. And uh, that was the interesting thing to me because I have a very good memory. So when I zeroed in on what I was thinking at the time and the gestalt of the, a lot of them are, are married to the time, the time, which any, any artist, you know, in any field, the, the, it's a reflection of the time they live in. You know, so they're not in a vacuum. So when they come up with something, even if it's unconscious, it's a product of their environment, where they are, and what's going on, you know, in society. There was no reason for me to put that down on paper and, until I did this. So, you know, yeah, I can't teach people how to come up. It's like, oh, read my book and you'll get great ideas for movies. No, because <laughs> you can see it. But it's a way of thinking, and I'm me, and the person reading it, they're not me, so they're going to have their own way of doing that. Or maybe I came up with a template where, hey, you too can be a screenwriter, just uh, <laughs> follow these basic rules, you know. 
Well, and it's one thing to come up with these ideas and to write them down and flesh them out and, you know, kind of perfect them on the page, but it's another thing for you to then be that director and go out and do this stuff to have that chutzpah to, to actually bring these things to life that you could make squirm going out there and making your first feature film when you hadn't made a feature film before is pretty gutsy. I know my friend Richard Crystal, who I mentioned in the book, and Richard's, you know, he's Billy Crystal's brother, and he was in Blue Sunshine. And he's the first, he throws the girls in the fireplace and then gets killed. And Richie read the book and he said to me, I forgot what balls you had. (laughs) And I said, I forgot too. I mean, at that age, you're telling Rod Serling to do something, you know, to directing Rod Serling. I just didn't, it's like a different person. I didn't know, I didn't know any better. I mean, to me, it was like, this is what I'm doing. I don't care who, who it is. You know, now I can do that. You know, but with no experience whatsoever, I, that didn't bother me. I don't know why. Yeah, to read some of those stories of some of the folks that you, you know, rubbed elbows with, that you worked with, that you almost worked with, that maybe almost uh, were in some of the films that you uh, ended up doing. I mean, just I was telling my wife as we were watching Squirm the other day, I was just like, yeah, that person was almost Kim Bastinger, and that was almost Martin <laughs> Sheen, and that was almost Sylvester Stallone funny thing about it is that doesn't mean the movie would have been better all it would have meant is it would have been more famous i would have made more money but it, it doesn't necessarily mean i mean i think i don't think martin sheen would have been better than don scardino and i don't think i don't think kim bastard would have been better than pat piercy you know as far as you know with 2020 hindsight you know they become big names and you know that's you know the movie um the lords of flatbush you know, that was a perfect example. Uh, Stallone was in it. Um, Henry Winkler was in it. Uh, Susan Blakely was in it. And they all, they weren't even in SAG. It was a non-SAG movie. It was done, it was shot on 16 and blown up to 35. Well, I forgot the name of the director, but he just got lucky. And then it became a famous movie based on who's in it. But it wasn't who's in it when he made the movie. It was called Sexual Freedom in Brooklyn. That was I read the script. You know, it's just luck, pure luck. And had I gotten those people, I'd look like some kind of casting genius where uh, that's twenty twenty hindsight. You know? But as it is, I mean, you're working with Rick Baker, so you have those incredible special effects that you have. So Rick Baker wasn't Rick Baker. And just pure luck, he was a protege of Dick Smith, and it was the beginning of the use of the prosthetics. I came in just perfect time for that. You know, maybe a couple of years before that, it would just be not doable to have the worms go under the skin. They wouldn't, they weren't putting these um, separate tissue thin prosthetics on faces and blending them out so you couldn't see it. That was the beginning of doing that. So you can make the reason that it was so effective is because you can maintain, you can see the actor's eyes and his real facial expressions because they would move with the prosthetics of separate pieces where if you put a mask on you put a mask on it looks totally fake and there's no emotion to it that was lucky you using the um the slaughtered pig noise over the worms i mean it's just it makes your skin crawl dan sable was my um sound editor and he worked on brian de palma's first several movies, including 
Carrie. So he had just done Carrie. And, you know, when you're a sound editor, you have all these sounds in your, they didn't have computers, but they have on tape. So what is the sound of a worm? No sound, right? It, well, it must make some sound. If you were like a tiny little microbe, you probably hear these worms. So they're slimy and they're, so they rub together. Anyway, Danny was miffed about what to do with the worms. And he just, he was way off. And I said, let me think of what a thing that's kind of like the skin of a worm rubbing against another. I just rubbed two balloons together. I did this at home with a Wallensack uh, tape recorder. And I rubbed two balloons together in different speeds. And then as far as the pinchers of the um, the worms, I used a big shear, like a shear, you know, um, big scissor. And I recorded that too. And so Danny put them on separate tracks. And then I said, now if we have just a few worms, you use the first one, which is the balloons in three different speeds. And then if you see a lot of them, you just keep doubling up and tripling up until the whole sea of worms. And that's, that, that's what you're hearing. But as far as when the worm opens their mouth, Danny says, I got this thing from Carrie. And in Carrie, Brian De Palma used that effect. And it was a pig being slaughtered, the scream. I said, great, we sunk it up to the mouth. I said, this is, I mean, you're going to argue with me that worms don't scream. How do you know? You're not a micro. Like you can't just because you can't hear it doesn't mean they're not screaming. So that's, that's how we came up with it. I have to tell you that of all your films, it's tough for me to choose which one I like the most, but I have to say that blue sunshine is up there. Some of the visuals in there are just so striking, especially the, the bald women. It just really takes your breath away. You know, blue sunshine has gained sort of a, um, yeah, I hate to say everything is a cult. You make a movie, 12 people like it. It's a cult, you know, but, uh, in that case, it's like a pop culture. Blue Sunshine is like a pop culture thing of the time, which is great for me. It's fantastic because that's what I was doing. I was doing something that was specifically in the 70s about the hippies becoming mainstream and establishment. And so it's so time stamped and it should be. Like I said to somebody, if you're going to remake Blue Sunshine, literally not um, you know, modernize it with different drugs and stuff, but literally remake it, you'd wind up doing a very expensive period 70s movie. You'd have to get 70s cars, 70s everything. And so I looked at it when I watched the movie, I go, well, I made a 70s movie, only I was doing it at that time. So it didn't cost that much. You know what I mean? Like you see so many things on Netflix that people are making new things that for some reason take place in the seventies. I don't know what it is. They think that the seventies is going to rub off on the, on the thing, but literally you see, and and then some of them are confusing because they have all seventies cars and a seventies look and telephones. And then no. And then when it comes to telephone, they have a cell phone. I go, well, how come they're driving a beat up 75, you know, do you notice that? I think it's all over, but it's a 70s movie. It has the look of it. It's very authentic. We shot it all on location. It's a timestamp. That's the only way I can, I can put it. I remember really enjoying the music for that one as well. 
Charles Gross, it's fantastic. It's not what you, you know, the one thing I told them, you know, if, I don't know if you're filmmakers listening, but um, it's, when you talk to somebody who's doing your score, it's basically a process of, if you like their work, you just tell them what you you don't want. Like, you know, for sure you don't want, but you can't tell them what you do want. That's their job, basically. And uh, in in this case, I said, I don't want anything, even though it's drugs and even though LSD and I don't want any 60s trippy rock, you know, all that obvious stuff. I don't want any of that. So that was, you know, kind of surprising to him. But that's the reason why the score is so good. I mean, it would be terrible if I did like, you know, whatever the score was for Peter Fonda's The Trip, psychedelic stuff, that would make the movie like really corny now. So it was really cool what he came up with. It was great. I knew it as soon as he did it. I knew immediately he nailed it. What's been your experience over the years working with actors and and learning how to deal with actors and how to direct people? It's called Earn While You Learn. I didn't know shit from the beginning. And uh, literally, you you learn by doing it and figuring it out. If if somebody would have told me how to do it, it would have saved me a lot of headaches. But uh, now I know how to do it. It's a combination of a lot of things. First of all, the biggest thing with not working with actors, but the biggest thing um, in general is the casting itself to get the chemistry and the, and the who you cast their quality as a person, what they bring in as a quality as a person and their quality against somebody else's. You already see how the movies, you know, it, it almost doesn't matter what the words that they say in the script, you already kind of have a feel for how it's going to be. And then once they say the words, it just comes alive and you kind of like, don't ruin it. If you cast it right, your job is to not fuck it up <laughs> you know, in your direction. That's what it comes down to, to step back. It took me a long time to realize that, but that means you really got to be good at casting. That's such a key. If you have a good script, and it's cast right. I think Woody Allen said that. Then you sit back and record it, you know, basically. I'm always curious about Zelman King. What was he like to work with? Impossible. <laughs> yeah. I mean, he was like, he was very, I, I don't think he was comfortable in the idea of him being an actor. So he did a lot of, he did a lot of posing instead of acting. And he was never, you know, into a, playing a certain character, you know, in his case with me, I made a big mistake, huge mistake, which I would never make today. And that was, you know, I told him that he wanted the audience to be wondering whether he took the LSD back then, like, you know, like the kicker is going to be that he's going to freak out and lose his hair. I should never have said that because then he started playing that a guy that was, borderline on the edge, you know what I mean? And that, that was a big mistake because what I would know now as an adult is that it was implicit in the script. Like I wrote that script. So I knew when I was writing it, the audience might think that. So the worst thing you could do is have the actor play that, right? So it becomes like white on white. And uh, that's what he did. And I think that was, 
to the detriment of the movie, and that's my fault. But it doesn't seem to buy, you know, he, he, it's really funny. Everybody says he looks like uh, Sean Penn in the movie. And then once they said that, I go, yeah, that's right. It does look like Sean Penn. You tell a story in the book about working with George Kennedy and the horses, and I love that story. Yeah, um, George, you know, was in so many Westerns, and I, I just figured it's a slam dunk to have him. We have a horse in the movie just before dawn, and I just thought, well, one thing this guy knows how to do is ride a horse. I've seen him in all these movies. And then I found out in his contract that um, specifically – you can't film him getting on or off a horse. It was like really weird. Like they didn't say you can't film him on a horse. That would have been, you know, we wouldn't have cast him because it's part of the movie. But just getting on and off. So it piqued my curiosity. So I told my assistant director at the time, Fred Berner, like when George has to get on the horse, I told him about the contract. I said, let's go check out what they're talking about. Like they don't want us to film. And he, said they're doing it now and they went off and they were outside of our shoot where we were shooting about you know 200 yards away and they had a work light going they had a couple of teamsters they had to lift him up and put his stomach on the saddle and then the horse was started to rotate <laughs> and he, his legs were out and his arms were out and they're shoving his leg his other leg over the horse to get to, you know, and it was pretty funny, but I could see why, you know, this is a forest ranger. And it really wouldn't have worked in the movie or any movie for that matter, unless it was a Mel Brooks movie. And then once he was on the horse, he stayed there. He never got off because for the same reason, he'd have to get, get guys to take one leg and put it over the other. So I felt bad for the horse though. That's for sure. Can you imagine he's in one of those movies where they go, okay, boys, saddle up. You know, and then they cut to him and everybody's looking at their watch. <laughs> By the time he can, he's mounted and ready to go, the bad guys are in Mexico already. One of my other favorites here is, is remote control. I love the look of the movie within the movie, the actual videotape that the people are watching. Just it floors me every time. It looks so great. That, you know, that caused us a big problem that only people that make movies would understand. And that was that, um, you know, I, I didn't want to say this in the book because you'd have to have seen the movie to understand this. But the people, there's a thing called a completion bond, you know, an insurance bond to make sure you know that you can make this movie with this budget. And although I was cleared, I always came in uh, on budget. So the so the Bond people had no problem with me directing it, but they had a big problem with the script because they thought in reading the screenplay that we were basically shooting two movies, that the that the old black and white movie was a, a separate entire movie and then we're going to just keep cutting to it. So it really took, I remember we had a big meeting, they wouldn't bond the movie because they said, there's no way you could do this. And I had to literally say, you see this scene? In the script, we went page by page. I said, now I go action, they do this, and it's and We're not shooting anymore. But it gives the illusion, obviously successfully in the movie, that there was an entire movie called Remote Control made in the 50s. See what I'm saying? But they, they it was so convincing to them that they couldn't get in their head, I'm only going to shoot these specific 
scenes and that's it. And we're fitting that into our schedule and there was no problem. We had no problem with scheduling. That must have been a lot of fun to be able to shoot that type of throwback footage. But I wish I kept the uh, automatic knitting machine and and especially the um, the thing that um, you wash washes your face and brushes your teeth. You stick your face in. The reason I did those things is that I, I love the 50s sci-fi movies that predicted the future. You know, even if you look at movies that were done much more recently that predict the future, they're always so off in their predictions, you know. I think somebody told me Road Warrior was supposed to be 2021 or something like that. Like one of the not-too-distant movies predicted in 2021 would be post-apocalypse, you know. They, they, you couldn't be more off, you know. In the 50s movies, they would do this all the time, and then they would always have something that actually resonated in the future that they did, you know, just whatever sticks to the wall. And one of the predictions actually happened. So I figured it wouldn't be cool to have all these crazy inventions in the movie like they used to. And then one of them actually became true, which was home video. So I came up with the automatic knitting machine, which really didn't happen. And the, uh, and the automatic face washing toothbrushing machine in your bathroom that didn't happen. But when she says, look, movies in our very own home, and she puts what they would do in the 50s, because if they were making a movie in the 50s and predicting that, they wouldn't know about videotapes. So they would have film reels that you stick into this machine under your TV and you watch the movie in your very own home. And sure enough, we had a version of that 30 years later. 40 years later. I think I ended up buying that Blu-ray from you, from your website. Is that the best place for people to get that? Yes. Don't buy it on e- uh, on eBay. It's more money. Not not that much, more, but it's like four four or five dollars more. If you buy it on um, jefflebermandirector.com, which is my website, I'll repeat that. All one word, jefflebermandirector.com. Um, you'll see both international and uh, America sales, and it goes direct. <laughs> I go on eBay, and then the reason I put it on eBay is to stop these people. I saw somebody $900, super rare, and then another guy discounted to $580 plus $20 shipping. And how do you stop these people from doing that? And the only way I could think of is, well, I'll put it up on eBay for – $26, you know, and that is the only way I can do it. So that's what I did. But it's, it, but if you go to what I said, Jeff Liebman, director.com, it's even cheaper. And I pay for the shipping, free shipping. If it's uh, domestic, there was one moment in your book that I did not expect at all. I love how you preface it with this whole idea of like, I'm going to do a flashback and I don't want to do a flashback, but you have to like tell this one story before you get to the other story, telling the story and telling the follow-up to the whole Sonny Liston thing. I was almost in tears reading that. Yeah. Two other people told me that every single thing in the book is true. I, I, you know, I'm thinking, wow, I don't have to make, (laughs) I wouldn't make up anything, but I wrote it all down at the time and it's all true. But that encounter with Sonny Liston when I was a kid and Geraldine Liston remembering when I made the documentary for HBO, that was, I mean, I was in tears. 
when she remembered little Howdy Doody, which was me, she couldn't, you know, it's like, first of all, she wasn't thinking about Howdy Doody and a little white kid from back then. And secondly, from 1962, and then realize I'm the guy that's interviewing her. It was just too much. It was really uh, a great moment. But my regret was, I don't know if I mentioned this in the book, but it was very foggy out. And there was some question whether I could get back, to, you know, fly back to Los Angeles that night. And they were all, so she said to stay, you know, in the hotel I was at. And she said, let's get Jeff on the boat. She wanted to shoot craps on the, on the boat. You know, they have um, in St. Louis, you know, all these places have crazy rules where you can't have a casino, but you can't have it. It's on the water, but it's not really on the water because the boat is not going anywhere. And I, to this day, you know, when somebody says, Jeff, what do you regret in life? Up there in the, <laughs> in the top five has to be that it didn't stay and shoot craps with Sonny Liston's wife, Geraldine. I mean, what a idiot I was. To, I know why I did it. I was very busy doing something else. I had to get back to LA, but that's not a good reason. Did you ever find yourself as you're writing about yourself? Did you ever find yourself as a, at a loss as far as like, what, what happened? Did you have to consult with other people and say, what happened here? I don't remember this part. No, I, I'm telling you that I have one of these memories where I don't know what the real definition of photographic memory is. Somebody knows it came up with the term. But when I remember something, I remember the visual, like where I was standing when something happened. Literally, I could tell you, I could draw a picture of a room and say where I was and where the person said this. Like um, the whole story when I was doing, um, got kind of mixed up with the mafia in Little Italy. And I remember the layout of Larry's bar and where each person said what they said and where I was, like from my point of view. That's how I remember things. It's like a visual memory. It's never, it's not, it's never remembering something without the vivid visual it just comes together. And then I have, you know, my wife to verify if, if I have any question, she was there not physically at the things and when they happen necessarily, but certainly if I came home and told her that, so she remembers that too. And then uh, like there was only one thing that I questioned my own memory about, because it seemed so outrageous. And that was going to Woodstock and banking on eating <laughs> that guy, Charlie Baxter. I know that I know Charlie Baxter happened. He worked for me. I couldn't believe my own memory that the entire Woodstock festival was put in the hands of somebody who had absolutely no previous history in catering to feed, you know, God knows how many people. And it turns out that, um, I know Michael Lang who produced the Woodstock festival. He's in it. The guy with the curly hair on the motorcycle. And uh, I was up in Woodstock, uh, the real Woodstock, not where the festival took place. And my cousin used to date him. That's how I knew him back in high school. So I was at this barbecue and I said, Michael, I'm going to tell you, I know you hear a million Woodstock stories because you're you, but did Charlie Baxter, <laughs> and I told him that food for love and Charlie Baxter, and he had absolutely no experience and you gave him and Michael's head was going up and down like one of those bobble dolls. And uh, that was verified. You know, I was like, 
he could have said, you're out of your mind. You know, where did you get that from? But uh, that was the most, because that's the most hard to believe thing in the whole book that I can't believe, except I, I say, this is reality. This is what happened. And uh, he verified it. He should know. I didn't realize that you were behind actually one of my favorite shows and it was gone way too fast, which was Love You to Death. I loved that. I loved uh, John Waters as the Groom Reaper. I wish that that had gone on forever. It would have gone on forever, except for the fact that uh, they just changed. You know, it would be like, well, you're doing a show for ABC. Oh, guess what? We just sold the network to somebody else and they're making a sports channel. That's what, that's basically what happened. They changed Core TV. They changed the name to True TV. And True TV meant hidden cameras at a stop sign, you know, people going through and talking their way out of tickets. That kind of, like, nothing to do with um, doing scripted, where our show was the first scripted um, show for Court TV to get out of, they were out of just court, you know, like OJ trials, and they were ran down into scripted stuff and they were doing documentary stuff. But to go from that to hidden camera pranks and stuff, it was just, just didn't fit the format. So that was the end of the show. It's too bad. I asked you where the best place to get remote control is. Where's the best place to get your autobiography day of the living me, get it on Amazon or I just always wanted to say this, but it's bullshit, but I'm going to say it anyway. Or where better books are sold. Yeah, that's what they used to say, like, where better books are sold. So, like, I want to go to one of the places that they don't sell the better books. You know, you know what I mean? Like, what if they, they filter out the good books and they only sell, but they always say that. You know? It's like saying uh, we accept major meta credit cards. Well, what's a, what's a minor credit card? What would qualify as a credit card that they won't accept? But anyway, yeah, Amazon, Amazon.com, Days of Living Me, and my name, and uh, available in uh, Kindle and paperback. And I suggest if people are fans of mine and this pandemic shit is over, you know, normally I time this whole thing. I figured I'm going to do personal appearances because people want to talk to me and sign it, right? You can't sign a digital thing but you can sign the paper paperback but i could i would have done like three personal appearances already since this came out so basically i'm going to push it forward it's not like the book's going to go away so anybody that has it when i appear at you know a convention or a screening or a book signing at places like uh i did one for remote control at uh, dark delicacies in los angeles i would probably have done that already with the, with the book. Uh, there's a place called Forbidden Planet in Manhattan. I probably would have done it already there where I could meet the fans and sign the book. So I'm just going to push it forward. And when, I, when we're back to normal, I'll be doing it. So that's one of the reasons to buy the paperback. And then they can get it signed by me at some point. I'm not going to, I wouldn't, you know, like anybody that bought the book, I'm not going to charge them for me to sign my own book. See what I'm saying? You know, on the other hand, if I went to these things, I would have a whole pile of books to sell, but it's not going to happen. I got to say kudos on the uh, cover art. Whoever did that, it's really clever. I love seeing the people in the audience. Yeah, Rick Trembles. We worked together. It's so great. I went to the School of Visual Arts and I was just all smiles working with Rick. I knew who he was. I loved his work. 
And I, I just thought, you know, this would be great to have him do this. It's just working with him, back, the back and forth brought me back to when I was in art school. You know, it was just a great uh, collaboration. He did a terrific job. I, I love it. It's fun to look at. I, every once in a while, I check it out. And the back, everything about it. Rick Trembles in Montreal. Well, thank you so much. This was great talking with you. I really appreciate this. Thank you. I love this uh, kind of thing. Thank you.